there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning how you might combine your love of animals with the legal field, or if you're also interested in public housing or in housing in general, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest has been working at the intersection of those fields for the last seven years and has even founded her own practice dedicated to helping people and their pets. But before I introduce you to Abby Vollen, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays and gives you an exclusive window into the episodes and the professions we're going to be featuring that week, and it is super easy to do. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Abby Vollen, the founder of Opening Doors, a team of animal accommodation legal experts who advocate for tenants with pet-related housing issues and also help housing providers manage pets on their properties. Abby is a nationally recognized expert on animal accommodation law and frequently holds lectures for landlords, attorneys, animal welfare advocates, and healthcare providers. Prior to starting Opening Doors, Abby worked as a policy specialist at the Humane Society of the United States and began her career as a litigator. Abby, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am, Andrea. I am fully caffeinated. Awesome. And we should let our listeners know that while you are caffeinated, you are also a big water drinker. So (laughs) during our interview, when they hear Abby taking little sips, it's not coffee that she's drinking, but I'm going to give her a slide. (laughs) I'm going to let grandfather you in here and let you continue. Stay hydrated. That's the most important thing. So you founded Opening Doors in 2017, and as your website explains, you're a team of animal accommodation law experts. What does that mean, Abby, and what do you do? Yeah, so again, this is something I've kind of created this niche. When I say animal accommodation law, I'm talking about the Fair Housing Act, the Americans with Disabilities Act the Air Carrier Access Act, and that's for individuals living with a disability and the ways in which their animals help them cope with their impairments. We're talking about service animals and emotional support animals and assistance animals and all the legal nuances that come into that. And it really impacts everyone. It impacts housing providers. It impacts public spaces. It impacts colleges and universities and airlines. It really is everywhere. And people don't quite realize to make a label for it. So I call it animal accommodation law. A lot of it is civil rights too. There's a civil right aspect to it. Okay. Interesting. Explain that. Sure. Well, you're talking about individuals living with a disability and that is a protected class. 
And so it's understanding what does it mean to be living with a disability, which is actually a very broad standard under these animal accommodation laws. And then what are your rights and responsibilities under it? And how do animals help you cope with your impairment? And so because it is a protected class, you are entitled to certain rights. So when you say somebody with disabilities, could you kind of lay out for us what they include? And do you have to get a professional diagnosis in order to qualify? Oh, boy. So a disability has different meanings depending on the law in which it is used. When it comes to these civil rights laws for the animal accommodation, America's with Disabilities Act and the Fair Housing Act, the definition of disability is actually really broad. It's do you have a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits an activity of daily living? So do you have a physical or mental impairment, whether or not we're talking about epilepsy or depression or ADD or cancer, and really it's any kind of impairment, and does it impact an activity of daily living? So do you have difficulty with sleeping, standing, sitting, thinking, focusing, reading? It's purposely very broad. Congress purposely made this these protections and the definition of disability very, very broad. And in fact, according to the CDC, over one in four people are living with a disability. Now, just because you are living with a disability does not mean you are automatically entitled to an accommodation. You have to find accommodation that alleviates a symptom or effect of your disability. So if you have ADD and you have trouble focusing, let's say by having your cat on your lap, it helps you focus so you can do your work. Well, that's a disability. And there you have an accommodation, something that helps alleviate a symptom or effect of your disability. Now, in terms of how to validate, when it comes to animal accommodation law, if your disability is obvious, if you can see it, it's readily apparent, no more verification is needed. If the use of your animal is obvious, no verification is needed. So when we think about this, think about a guide dog for the blind. That is going to be obvious both for the disability and the accommodation. It's very obvious why you need that animal. But what if you're in a wheelchair, which is obvious, you have a disability, but then you have a dog standing next to you? Well, you don't know what that dog is for. So in that case, you may have to provide verification of why you need that animal. So you also asked about verification, if you need, you know, a doctor to establish that you're living with a disability. The answer is actually no. Certainly, if it comes from a doctor, that will certainly be persuasive. But the standard under these laws, and this is something that most people, including attorneys, don't realize, it just has to be reliable. Someone with personal knowledge of your disability and the way in which it expresses itself, it manifests itself in the ways that you cope with that disability. If someone has personal knowledge of that, that verification would be reliable. For example, let's say I have an addiction problem and I go to AA and I talk about my dog and how my dog has been really instrumental in helping me stay sober. Well, in that case, someone from your AA group could certainly provide verification 
reliable verification that you are living with a disability, which is addiction. Now, disability is not if you're currently using, but if you are dealing with the aftermath, dealing with addiction. So that's obvious for having a disability. And then the fact that your dog is the one that's helping you stay sober, well, that is alleviating a symptom or effect of your disability. And I think certainly someone from your AA group would be a more reliable source to verify that than, say, your primary care physician or whatever other doctor you might go to. So really, it just needs to be reliable, which most often is from a doctor, but it need not be. And let me also say that it is not the same as a prescription. You don't need an official diagnosis. You just need to have an impairment that impacts an aspect of the way you live your life. Got it. Could you give us perhaps another example of some of the kinds of cases that you've handled for clients? So the issues I tend to deal with for helping people with this issue, it's usually around mental health. People who are dealing with anxiety or depression or bipolar. Frankly, we live in precarious times. And and certainly as mental health is being less stigmatized and more people are willing to acknowledge that they have some difficulties and they need some help, that's an issue that is really dominating the animal accommodation world. I think it's also that people don't realize that there are countless types of impairments for which an animal will help alleviate a symptom or effect. That's why I hate the term emotional support animal. I tend to not use it. I'm trying to get it out of our lexicon. And it's because it really narrows the types of impairments for which we think an animal will be appropriate. Animals can just be so therapeutic in countless ways. So for example, I have epilepsy. And one of the triggers is stress. And so my cat, she helps me keep calm. If my blood pressure starts to rise, she'll come over to me or I'll go over to her and and she'll sit in my lap and it's very soothing when I pet her. And that's alleviating a symptom or effect of my disability, which is I tend to have seizures. And so that is another appropriate use of assistance animals. People don't understand. They don't realize how broad it is. And so I think that's another reason why it tends to only come to light for mental health issues. I find this absolutely fascinating because as somebody who is not an expert, I would not have guessed that when you're talking about helping people with housing and the involvement of animals and public policy and disabilities, that mental health would be chief among them, or that that would be a common thread running through most of these cases. Yeah. And I think something that's really come to light these days is how therapeutic animals are for both our physical and mental health. There's been a lot more research on it. Studies just really showing that connection between having an animal and sometimes it's, you know, a a service that animals provide that you've trained it to do. And sometimes it's just the fact that the animal is there. I can tell you, I've gone through major health crises. My cat knows it. She absolutely knows and she will wrap herself around me. She can sense it. So animals are, are very therapeutic. 
And we are starting to really understand all the ways in, in which that happens, along with our destigmatizing of mental health. So putting those two aspects together is really why I think there's been an explosion or what feels like an explosion in animal accommodation requests. So prior to founding Opening Doors, you were a policy specialist for companion animals at the Humane Society of the United States, and that's the national chapter. And I believe mm -hmm. that you worked there for about four years. Is that right? Yep, that is correct. And what did you do in that role? So I worked on local, state, and federal legislation that most of it dealt with housing issues. A lot of states are trying to enact laws to ferret out the, and I say, quote unquote here, fraudulent use of service and assistance animals. I say, quote, because again, you got to look at the data and the data will not show you that the problem is fake service animals or emotional support animals. The problem is actually something else. It has to do with housing availability and rules and all sorts of things. Anyways, a lot of states were implementing those kinds of laws and so I, I was working on them. Again, there's just not a good understanding of what protections are available under state and federal fair housing laws. And a lot of times, a lot of these state laws were violating the Fair Housing Act left and right. And the state legislators, they did not understand what the consequences of that would be. For many states, it would mean that they would lose funding from HUD. And nobody wants their law to be challenged and then deemed unconstitutional because you're violating a federal law. So it was guiding legislators to understand that when you have a hammer, everything is a nail. They're looking at the issue in the wrong way because they're just going by anecdotes. They are not going by research and data. And so I was working on a lot of those laws. And again, it was trying to get people to understand that this is not a zero-sum game, that everyone can walk away from this in a better position because landlords have rights that they don't realize and they don't assert. And I tell them they should. Both residents and landlords under animal accommodation laws or under fair housing laws, they have rights and responsibilities that they should assert and that they should adhere to. And when one side isn't, which a lot of property managers aren't, it builds a lot of resentment. They think they're being taken advantage of when they really do have the tools at hand. And so working on these laws, I had to try to convince housing providers that they already have the tools they need to reduce questionable animal accommodation requests. And I also worked on a lot of legislation. It's usually local municipalities who have implemented breed-specific legislation, meaning they'll say, no pit bulls are allowed in our community. And if you have one, it will be seized. And so trying to break down the myths of what makes a dangerous dog of, of what those risks are and how you can mitigate them and trying to establish and show how just banning a type of breed of dog outright actually makes your community less safe. Got it. So why did you leave the Humane Society to start your own firm? Was it that you saw a gap in the marketplace? Well, I was laid off. We had a corporate restructuring where they laid off 10% of the staff. And unfortunately, I was caught up in that. But I wasn't done with this housing issue. I knew there was more there and that I could approach it in a different way by not being at HSUF. So 
when we would work with housing providers and government officials and legislators, they would say, look, we love our pets too, but you just don't understand where we're coming from. You're just here on the side of the animals. And so going out on my own, I was able to say, look, no, I'm not on the side. I am here to help you build a healthy community. And so I think that has been more helpful in getting housing providers to trust me and to work with me that I have this expertise and I have a different viewpoint and I have a different way of looking at these problems. And I will say what the services that I provide in the past three years, so two and a half years, it's been a meandering path as I've tried to determine for myself, what is the problem and where is the need? And what I started off for this vision of my firm has actually evolved over time. And that's been, it's been really interesting to see that evolution. And I feel like I'm at a really good spot now where I am able to convince housing providers or commercial real estate providers, how my services are necessary for them. And so that's been it's been very rewarding. I'm sure the education process, as you've gone out and tried to explain to these different actors out there what the value of your services are, has gotten easier and easier. And the education has gone both ways because prior to joining the Humane Society of the U.S., you were an attorney for an East Coast law firm that worked in very different fields of law. And I'm going to ask you about your work there in just a minute. But first, how did you learn animal welfare law when you moved to the Humane Society? Did it require a lot of studying outside the workplace? Certainly. The more I researched these issues, the more I wanted to dig into them on my own. And I am still learning new information and new nuances about these laws that I never thought about before. So certainly as you are working on local, state, and federal legislation, you have to have a very thorough understanding of the law. And as we were talking about before, where you don't need to have a certain major, you know, it's just a signal for the type of things that that you know how to do. Well, I majored in quantitative economics and community health. So I was good with numbers. I was good at math. I was good at data interpretation. I know how to read a study. And I also have this interest in looking at healthy communities. Not only that, but I'm a lawyer. And I know how to do legal research. And I know how to become a subject matter expert on something. And I know the resources that I need to look into to develop that kind of expertise. And it was just kind of all those components that came together that allowed me to really become a subject matter expert in this area of law. And it also helps that it's something I'm very passionate about, right? Certainly when it's something that really hits home for you, you you are just hungry to absorb every little bit of information that you can. And what I found is that there's a big gap. There's a big gap. I found that the information that I needed to find just didn't exist. And so I decided it was up to me to put it out there. Terrific. So for our young listeners, Abby, who may be working in a law firm right now as young associates or maybe thinking about going into the law and haven't yet identified kind of what they're passionate about, what aspect of the law, what was that transition like for you when you went from the law firm that worked on a whole bunch of different things, but not on animal welfare law and moved into the Humane Society. How did you make that pivot? 
That's part of what I suggest or part of my advice when people want to go into nonprofits. It's not just about I love animals. It's what can you offer that nobody else is? And it's having that skill. Are you really good at marketing or at SEO? Do you know how to litigate a case? Those are the kinds of skills you need to have. Do you know how to conduct studies? Do you know how to evaluate studies? Have that skill. And then you can apply it to anything. I said I majored in quantitative economics. And that's what I really liked about it. We were the ones that made those regressions. We would be the ones to create the models so that you could determine what are the factors of behavior and what is needed to resolve a problem. And having that background meant that that was a talent, that was a skill that I could bring to this new subject. You can always learn the subject matter of something. It just is a matter of your determination and how much you want it and how much time you're willing to devote to really thoroughly understanding an issue. But I think it's really important to have that skill that you have. You work on regulatory issues, great. That means you can work in public policy as it relates to federal regulations that agencies produce. Are you a litigator? Great. That's a skill you can bring. For me, it was learning landlord-tenant law. Well, I know how to be a litigator. I just have to learn the ins and outs of procedures for landlord-tenant cases. So it's just having that skill that you've honed and where are you going to apply it? Yes, those are the transferable skills that can apply pretty much to any field that you go into. Exactly. So as I've alluded, before you joined the Humane Society of the U.S., you were an attorney in the law firm of Harris Beach's New York and New Jersey offices, and you were practicing in the mass torts, an industry-wide litigation practice group, and the medical and life sciences industry team. What does that mean you did? It sounds pretty overwhelming, to be perfectly honest. So I did a lot of work for municipalities when they would have cases against them. I did work on asbestos cases. I did work on you know medical malpractice and product liability. I did work on intellectual property. I even brought in a few animal law cases of my own. And again, that just spoke to a lot of lawyers were generalists. And so when you know how to litigate a case, it's just a matter of learning the subject matter. And that's really what those experiences taught me is just how to pivot and how you can be helpful to your clients, no matter no matter what kind of issues they bring before you. Abby, you worked there for five years, and presumably you were on the partner track. You know, I I come from DC, where there was a joke: if you're at a little league game and someone gets hurt, there may or may not be a doctor there to help the person who's injured. But everyone's a lawyer, so the two sides can sue each other. My dad always asked me, so when are you going to law school? And I said, never, I'm never going to law school. Just because I see a lot of unhappy lawyers. Like, oh, crud. All right, with what I want to do, I should go to law school. Well, I'm never going to work in a law firm. Well, then I worked in a law firm. But I always knew that wasn't going to be what I wanted my career to be. And I wanted to give myself time to really figure out what direction I wanted to go into. And it's funny, I kind of set five years for myself. It didn't mean I wasn't going to stay that firm. I just, I wanted to figure out exactly what it was that I wanted to do, what path did I want to take. And I gave myself five years to figure that out. Well, as it happened, after five years, it really kind of crystallized for me. And I, I was able to make a transition that happened to be no longer in a law firm. I will tell you, the law firm I worked with, they were incredible. 
I said, I know so many unhappy lawyers. I was a happy lawyer working in a law firm. They very strongly believed in having a work-life balance, meaning you were allowed to have a life. And they were some of the nicest people. They were a joy to work with. I had such wonderful relationships and gained mentors that I'm still in touch with today. And I, I knew that if I left, sometimes when you have a really good mentor-mentee relationship, you know this is a fluke. It is very difficult to find that in the first place. And I knew if I left, I probably wouldn't find that again. And so it was a very difficult decision to leave. And also, I have to say, the New York City office was run by four people, three of whom were women. And they were so accomplished and, and managed to just really have a lot of success in all different areas of their life. And they were just the nicest people, not nice from lawyers, nicest people. It was just seeing them and practicing law with them. That really meant a lot to me and was very instrumental as I developed as a professional. Mm. Well, that's great to know that there are terrific law firms out there. So make sure to write this down. Harris Beach. (laughs) Great law firm. So just a few final questions for you, Abby. Yeah. As you've already alluded, you went to Tufts University where you majored in econometrics and quantitative economics. And Mm -hmm. I think you had, was it a concentration in community health? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? I thought I wanted to go into healthcare policy, which is why, you know, after a couple of years, I just wanted to kind of see what was out there and go to law school. I was actually going to get my law degree and a dual degree in my master's of public health. And that is what I wanted to do. Again, with the econometrics, you can apply it to anything. You're just writing the regressions and analyzing the data, but the data that you're analyzing can be in any topic. And so I just thought it was something that I was so transferable anywhere. And so I wanted to work in healthcare policy. And then I got to law school and I was taking these health law classes and I hated them. They were my least favorite classes. It was just all about regulatory stuff and mergers and antitrust. And I really didn't enjoy it. So I said, okay, well, this isn't for me. And that's kind of when I decided, all right, great, let's just see what this lawyering is all about until I was able to also realize that my love of animals could be translated into something that was a profession. And so I said, kind of, I went on a meandering path and it took me 18 years to get here. But I feel like I really found a way to mix everything together everything that I have studied and learned and experienced and my passion. And I've been able to really combine it into a unique niche, right? You have my quantitative economics background. I know how to read the data. I know how to read studies. I know what's good science and what's junk science. I have my public health background and that really comes into play when I'm looking at how animals impact our community health, how the issue of pets and housing impacts healthy communities, how it can make or break. And I'm using my legal skills, focusing on animal accommodation law. So I feel just so fortunate that I was able to find a way to bring all of this together. Well, it happened because you followed your curiosity and you had the courage to make it happen because you could have stopped at any point along the way. Could you share a time in your professional life, Abby, and you've alluded to at least one, when you struggled, and most importantly, how you persevered, and maybe a lesson that you learned through that process? Well, 
as I told you, I was laid off and that was very devastating. And I, I didn't quite know what I wanted to do from there. And so I kind of took a path to try to find it. But I also had a supervisor at one point where I could not connect with her no matter how hard I tried. I knew it was my responsibility to make the relationship work. And I just couldn't do it. I tried everything I could think of. And I consulted with friends and old classmates. I joined lean in groups and asked them. And whatever I did, I just couldn't make it work. She was getting frustrated. I felt like I was being hung out to dry. And I lost a lot of confidence in myself. Eventually, I learned I had to stop blaming myself and just acknowledge it wasn't a good fit. And then I was able to switch to a different supervisor. And I was put in a position that was just it was just a much better fit. And that allowed me to thrive a whole lot more at that organization. Everybody goes through rough patches. Everybody messes up at one time or another. We're human. I think what's more important is that you can own your mistakes. You can admit to them and say, this was my fault. Here is what happened. Let's figure out a way to fix it. And I'm sorry, and it won't happen again. And when you build that trust within an organization or with your supervisors or your team, it's a lot easier to be able to fix those mistakes without trying to be shameful or to hide something. And I've had a lot of setbacks, even when trying to build my firm. I can't tell you how many times I would just say, screw it. I'm going back to practicing law. I can't deal with this nonsense. But there's always something that just drew me back to this concept. It's just believing in yourself and having confidence in yourself while also having some humility to it. We're all going to make mistakes and mess up. It's how you deal with the aftermath that really shows your character. Thank you so much for sharing that, Abby. And if I could just add from my own experience, I would say it is far more likely than not that you will have at least one supervisor over the course of your career, if you work for others, that it just doesn't gel. And Abby is 100% right. It's on you because you're reporting to them to try to figure it out. I think what Abby managed to maneuver there by getting moved to a different supervisor is great advice if that's possible. And that's also very delicate to negotiate. But just remember, you will have people that you love that you work for and that you work with, and you may likely also have people you don't love. And Sometimes it's on you. By that, I mean sometimes it's because it's something you're doing. And sometimes it's because they, they might be awful managers. They might be not such nice people. We've all had that situation. You will get through it and you will learn. Even in those really miserable experiences, you will take away lessons that you'll say, wow, I will never be that kind of a supervisor. (laughs) I will never micromanage. I will never do this, that, and the other. So just keep putting one foot in front of the other and- Sermon is over. <laughs> Final <laughs> for C question. If you could yeah. go back to college, back to Tufts, and do it all over again, Abby, but based on the wisdom you have right now, what advice would you give yourself? In the parlance of our time, it's really important to find out what sparks your joy and to delve into it. I was stuck in a mentality that there were certain categories of professional jobs. And that was kind of it. You could be a doctor, investment banker, 
be a business person or veterinarian, a dentist, a lawyer. I didn't think more broadly than that. Or I didn't think that those were things that would be available to me or even understand that the options are, are really limitless, especially when I was so fortunate to be at a university like Tufts, which just has so many different programs and really values being part of a global partner in a global community. And, and what do you bring to that? I felt like I had to choose something that made me marketable as opposed to something that just I found so intellectually stimulating. And college is, I mean, think about it. You have four years and all you have to do is learn and just soak everything up. And that is such a gift. And I think it's really important to indulge your curiosity to branch out into things you never thought you would enjoy or were interested in and even things that you didn't even know existed. I had no idea what epidemiology was. I didn't even know the word epidemiology until I started my public health work. I think I still would have majored in quantitative economics and public health, but I would have had a very targeted focus to that work. Oh, what wonderful advice, Abby. Thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. Abby's firm is called Opening Doors. It's a team of animal accommodation legal experts helping residential and commercial property managers, tenants, residents, universities, employers, and healthcare providers. I hope if any of our listeners were unsure about what they wanted to do, maybe this sparked a little something in them and has inspired another generation of people who will follow in your footsteps, Abby. Thank you so much for what you're doing to help make our community a healthier and happier place to live. Thank you, Andrea. I really appreciate this opportunity. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.